Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. And those elements of food that were once celestial bodies, that were once plant bodies, that became animal bodies, are becoming our bodies. And I'm not sure there are many acts that are more intimate than that. I think sex between two people, I think pregnancy perhaps, rivals this for true deep intimacy. And I think this is, as a side note, I think this is why we have such tightly held tribalism and beliefs around our food. Hi, my name is Mark Groves and I'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do. In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in and transform our lives. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Mark Rose Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Kate Kavanaugh. Welcome. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here, Mark. I'm so excited to have you on. I saw all the stuff that you do, and I have been speaking a bit about this planting seeds, ooh, pun intended, in the podcast episodes, just really starting to pick up on what seems like a cultural conversation about farming, about people wanting to return to land. And, I, you know, I, I joke, is it just because, like, maybe I have an echo chamber of people who are being drawn more to environmental things. I don't think that's true because I get so much feedback from so many humans that it seems like there is this draw and that farming related things are now like sexy and blown up like there go viral, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I think it's interesting. I think that we're at a point where we're really searching for deeper connectivity, both with each other and with a sense of place, with where we are within an ecosystem. And I think that we can all feel sort of a, a void that is welled up in us, that we have been connected to our food for all of human history, right? We are 44,000 generations of, of hunters and gatherers. And so I think that we can feel a sort of sense of loss and grief over not having that connection both to place and the food we eat, but also to one another and a sense of community that is happening both above ground and within the soil. It's interesting that you say that because when I think about evolution, the last, I mean, we've really become disconnected from our food probably in the last 60 years, somewhere around there. I think there are fractures along the way. There are these little fractures that we see. I think we see a fracture at the dawn of agriculture around 12,000 years ago. I think we see some deeper fractures with the emptying of the commons in the mid-1800s, where we sort of lose touch with farming and the industrial revolution pushes us into cities. And I think we see that sort of over the course of the 20th century with World War II, we see much more of an emptying afterwards into cities and farming 
far less farms. You know, now I think about 2% of people in the United States live in a farming lifestyle. And so there has been this sort of mass exodus that has happened over time. I, you, you see it again, 1970s, the Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butt, says get big or get out. And we see this big consolidation and centralization of farming as well. Well, in that, in that like movement to, I guess, is it this being sold on more convenience? Like, is that ultimately what's moved us away from the farming space? I mean, if you have to grow your fucking carrot versus just go to a grocery store and go to that section and buy, you know, 10 of them, it, it seems easier. And as you're talking about it, I, I think about it's almost like people have an innate grief in the relationship to the carrot when it's not something that they nurtured. Now that we grow vegetables at our house, as a kid, I remember my mom had a garden and I, I didn't really get it. I mean, I was part of it sometimes, but it wasn't, I wanted to go play sports and do things. But as an adult now, I'm like, oh wow, how cool is it that that tomato is going to be on our salad or that kale or whatever it is. It just seems like there's a longing in us and technology and materialism can feed that longing, right? Like it's a longing that's monetizable. It's very monetizable. And yeah, what do you think? I think convenience plays a really big role in this. And I think that increasingly we have trended towards the idea, not just of convenience, but of yield and of productivity within agriculture that we have to be, we have to be doing instead of being. And I think that you really hit the nail on the head that there is also in us this longing to connect back to and to understand where our food comes from. And I think about this a lot that, you know, our body is made up of place, of of the place that we are in, in a traditional sense, right? That we have these minerals and elements that, you know, burst forth from the Big Bang and are made solid in rocks throughout deep time. And they're harvested inside of the soil from mycorrhizal fungi and accumulated back into plant tissues. And then we eat those plant tissues or animals eat those plant tissues and we eat them. And so we're made up of celestial bodies and plant bodies and animal bodies and this sense of place. I mean, even every breath, right? Every breath that I breathe out, I am surrendering a part of myself in carbon dioxide that will become plant bodies and they are producing oxygen that will be a part of my body. But now the places that we're made out of are all across the world, right? They are blueberries and chili and beef from Australia and grain from Europe, all of these different places and this manufactured and processed food while still bodies. And I think there's a disembodiment, a literal disembodiment that comes with that. And with it, a longing to connect again, as we have been for most of human history, back to our food. It would seem so simple to think that if I eat something that is actually chemically derived, is artificially created, like I think of how, I think it was it's probably Bill Gates. You get to blame everything on Bill Gates. But he wanted to grow that lab meat. I blame sweater vests on Bill Gates. But the the lab meat that he was growing, the Beyond Burger or whatever, I remember looking at the ingredients and they are like, first off, they are written in a different tongue. They're, you know, and I just think like what's so, what's frustrating because you don't know till you know, right? Like you don't even think about you're eating a, I loved spicy chicken combos from Wendy's when I was in college, but I wasn't thinking about <laughs> what I was eating. I was also drinking. I was at, you know, there was a calamity of poor health decisions, but you don't think about the level of the lack of intelligence that of the food that you're putting in your body, that your body's performing because it's young, you know, and it's it, it's got some resilience. But there is a time, like you look at, okay, fat's bad. That's the 1980s and 90s line, which also happened to beautifully partner with statins being written for cholesterol because mm -hmm. cholesterol is bad. And so you have this whole industry. So then sugar enters food on a high level to increase To the make taste it more palatable. Right. And then you have this massive rise in 
obesity, diabetes, and obviously, you know, those all things play together, all those metabolic issues. Rise of seed oils as well. I want to throw those in there. Seed oils, get into that because when someone asked me like, what do you think is the first thing you should cut from your diet? I had um, Keto Camp Ben, ben Azadi on the podcast and he was talking about how like, if there's one thing you cut, cut seed oils. We don't even realize how inflammatory seed oils are and we're sold. I mean, my, growing up, my dad had margarine, my dad and mom, and I, they might still have it. And you know, I just like, we're taught that it's worse for you than, or it's better for you than butter. Like, it's hard for me at this point not to be like, these are layers of intentional deception. And it's not that I believe that it's like there's a mis- a malicious eight people who are going, okay, let's launch margarine and seed oils. I think it's like profit mixed with all these things. And it's it's frustrating. It is really frustrating. And I think of this almost as the corporate organism, right? That it's almost this emergent property from humanity that we are in service to the bottom line. And the bottom line favors these hyper-processed, hyper-palatable foods over real whole foods that are more difficult to produce. And you touched on something, you know, when we're talking about lab-grown meat, we're talking about something that is processed. But we as humans don't really understand process. We don't think about everything that goes into any one given thing. And so within lab-grown meat, you're going to see this process of creating something out of synthetic ingredients in a laboratory that has all of this machinery that is created once again from these minerals and elements of the earth. And we can actually trace back and say that this plastic is from here and this, you know, cobalt or lithium or whatever it is that's powering these is from here and there's coal that's powering these plants. And so it's not isolated and it's not deathless because those had to be harvested and mined from somewhere. And it's true of everything, whether we're looking at our clothing or the flowers in the grocery store. And so I think as humans, we don't really track back to that process. And so when we talk about processed food like seed oils, which are going to be polyunsaturated fatty acids or omega-6s, we're talking about something that is basically an industrialized chemical. And that really is originally what it was, was that the oil from cotton seeds was not being used. And so it became Crisco. And this cottonseed oil started to enter our diet as a very cheap alternative because it was a byproduct of industrial processes. And it really took off, like you said, uh, you know, throughout time, fat gets vilified. And we have this idea that we can, we can create better nutrition, we can mechanize better nutrition than the wisdom of the natural world. And, you know, that starts really, I mean, there's some of these studies that come out of Nazi Germany, but then we see the big rise in that with Ansel Keys. And I think the the late 60s, early 70s, with his seven countries study, where he really vilifies saturated fat, which is going to be this omega-3 fat that's coming from animal fats. And so these things get replaced with these omega-6 fatty acids, which historically humans would have had in a one-to-one, maybe a one-to-two ratio of omega-3s to omega-6 fatty acids. Because you're finding omega-6 fatty acids in things like nuts and seeds that wouldn't be hyper-available to us in our, in our gathering history in large amounts. And so you see that our bodies aren't comprised of a lot of omega-6 fatty acids. For example, your cell membrane should be between 7 and 9% omega-6 fatty acids, it lends a little bit of fluidity to that. And now we're seeing cell membranes that are approaching 30% of omega-6 fatty acids. And this is a very inflammatory fatty acid because of the way that it oxidizes inside of our bodies, basically that it goes rancid. And so this is causing and driving a lot of inflammation. And arguably, there is some correlation that it is also connected to insulin resistance as well. So that it's not just sugar that might be driving this, but these poofas or or seed oils as well. Man, I mean, for people to to fish through all this information, because you have to let what you have to let be true is that you weren't necessarily told the truth about anything nutritionally. You <laughs> you weren't taught about nutrition. 
And on top of all of that, like, I think the, the one belief that just has to die, it just has to go is this naive belief that big ag and the government wants you to give you the most healthy thing. That belief can't possibly exist when you look at even the impact of things like technology on us, you know, and the only way, because I think of that infantilization that the government puts on people, which of course allows them to maintain a sense of power, it's the only way to save oneself or heal oneself through that process is actually to become the parent of yourself, you know? And that's why this, although we're talking about food and you are what your food eats, ideally your food eats something, it relates so much to relationship because if you're not in natural relationship with food and the world and nutrients, you actually can't psychologically perform well. You want to heal a reactivity in a relationship, but you don't have the nutrient density to be able to pause because if we're actively going on high fructose corn syrup all the time, how do we expect the child in a class to sit and behave? How do we expect ourselves not to be reactive to our partner's you know, criticism? It's all so connected. It's all so connected. And how do we begin to, to function in the way that our bodies are meant to function without these nourishing foods? And I, I am going to push back a little bit because I do like to stray away from the idea that the onus is on the individual to learn all of this. I think that this is something that has to happen in community, that we are a part of community and this is a part of educating one another. And I think one of the things that these big corporations have sold us is that the onus is on the individual to save the planet, to recycle every straw, to keep the turtles alive, right? And so I really like to come back to this idea that what we have lost is this relationship with our community, with our ecosystem, right? That we are holobionts, that we are individuals that are made up of the relationships with our microbiome and with our human community and with the soil community and with the animals outside of us. And so I think that it actually transcends the individual and it is about restoring this web of life of partnership that I think also restores a deep sense of nutritional wisdom because we are the only animals that don't know what to eat. When I look outside at my pasture, my goats don't need to read books about what to eat and they are able to follow this innate nutritional wisdom to an incredible T. And there are studies like those from Fred Provenza and Stefan Van Vliet that show that animals can select what they need in terms of minerals and micronutrients, as well as secondary compounds. And so these are going to be things in grasses and plants that we would normally associate with things like wine or blueberries. So like anthocyanins or tannins or terpenoids all of these different things within a very small degree to the point that there is a great study that really illustrates this where they deprived sheep of the mineral phosphorus and they noticed that their serum levels of phosphorus weren't dropping. And it turns out that these sheep were reaching across the fence to eat the droppings of sheep that were being fed phosphorus in order to meet that nutritional need within themselves. And so this wisdom is in us. And I think that when we connect back in to this web of life and all of these relationships, I think that wisdom becomes more accessible. Well, you've now been running and working on and living on a farm for how long? 10 years? 10 years? No. So I've actually only been on a farm for three years, but I've been working in you know, what we call regenerative agriculture for about the last 15 years. What drew you to go to regenerative agriculture? Because before I know you were a butcher. So, I mean, I guess that relates well to it. It does. So I started, I started life really young, deciding that I wanted to be a vegetarian at age five. And there's a bit of a running joke in this community community that there's a, there's a vegetarian to regenerative agriculture pipeline. And, (laughs) (laughs) and I had made that decision. I was experiencing a lot of disconnection in my life as a child and a lot of death. And I felt very out of control. And I think like many people, 
I looked at food as this one space that maybe I could have agency over. And I think that's why I made that decision. It's hard to say now because I was so young. And then it sort of just grew from there. It grew into a desire for animal welfare. It grew into a desire to support, better support environments. And then in my late teens, I started getting really sick. I had a lot of gastrointestinal issues, a lot of depression, just massive amounts of fatigue. And around age 20, I could feel in myself a very specific hunger and decided that I wanted to eat meat again. And for me, that meant that I wanted to go in the opposite direction of my childhood, that I wanted to seek connection to my food through getting to know farmers and ranchers. And as somebody that goes all in on everything, I just went head on into that world, learning about agriculture, learning about nutrition, and learning how to butcher, and opened up a butcher shop in Denver about 11 years ago to better support regenerative agriculture along the front range. And people that were finding this symbiotic relationship between animals and the land that they were on to increase soil organic matter and support carbon and methane and water cycles and all of these different things. Yeah, it's so beautiful to start to see the web of the interconnectedness. Like, I appreciate your pushback on it's up to the individual because what you referenced is that even within our body as a community, like there's so many organisms and parasites and viruses and all these things working together in this symbiotic relationship most of the time to bring more life to us, you know, to like create, create vitality, to move our arm. Like everything is working in this beautiful dance. And you think of we're being drawn back into the dance. You know, we've got this idea of radical, you know, we were talking about Francis Weller that, you know, this radical individualism and there is actually a drawback to be in community. I think it was, I forget his name. I want to say Derek something. But he had a video that was going viral that he said, you know, if you get your water from a stream, your life depends on the stream. So you'll fight for the death for the stream. If you get your fish from a stream, you'll fight for the death to protect the fish. If you get your food from a store or your water from a tap, you'll fight to the death to keep the system that maintains those things. And it seems like you know, we go through things like a breakup with another human being, and we often will take radical change in our lives, generally, not always, but it is an opportunity to say, oh, how I relate is not working, or I betray myself. You have all this wisdom that comes from the fracture. And it seems that we are collectively experiencing health fractures, you know, like individually, we're having gut issues, we're having psychological challenges, we're having whatever it is. And it, you know, the natural healing process would be to come back to symbiotic relationship with the circadian rhythm, with morning sun, with feet. And so I remember listening to that relatively famous farmer who's on Joe Rogan, sometimes Joe, Joe something, I forget, but... Joel Salatin? Or is it Will Harris? I forget, but he was talking about how like he has people who just come to his farm to put their feet in the soil and get their hands in manure, like to, to start to, you know, get that relationship and exposure. It's so, imagine saying that to someone who like, no offense if you live in Soho or something in Manhattan, but like <laughs> that you need to like go out and put your hands in some shit, you know? Well, I think that's part of strengthening that, what you were talking about, that community inside of us, right? We're only 10% human. So for every one human cell, there are nine cells that are other, that occupy our microbiome, both inside and outside of our skin. Isn't that crazy? And I, I think this is true, right? There's this really thin space between what is self and what is other when you really consider that, 
right? And I think that you see this reflected in exactly what you said. When we put our hands in the earth, in the soil, that's 1 billion microorganisms per single teaspoon of soil, miles of mycorrhizal fungi in a single shovel full, 10 billion viruses in one teaspoon. And so that desire to put your hands in the soil or in shit, which is also very microbially rich, is a desire to strengthen the human organism that is mostly other. And those others are doing so much for us. And I think that this is really easily illustrated when we think about a ruminant. So when we think about an animal like a a cow, a bison, an elk, a deer, a sheep, a goat, these are all ruminants. And they have this four-chambered stomach that is very different than ours. We're monogastric animals. We just have one stomach. And inside of their stomach, inside of their rumen fluid, are 150 billion microorganisms per single tablespoon of rumen fluid. And these microorganisms form a symbiotic relationship where they actually create the enzyme that allows these animals to digest grass. And so it is out of relationship that that digestion happens, that they are able to create biomass from grass, able to live, able to have more aliveness. And the same is true for us. We have gut bacteria that produce things like vitamin K, different B vitamins that interact with our vagal nerve and help to activate our parasympathetic nervous system. And so this is always happening in that sense of community. And even down to the, you know, the adenosine triphosphate, the ATP that powers our cells, right? It's thought that that is produced in mitochondria in animals or chloroplasts in plants. And that's an ancient relationship where bacteria was engulfed by another cell. And it was so beneficial that it survived over billions of years. And so this is all happening in relationship. And the to bring it back around, you know, we were talking about Francis Weller, and I think that there is this sense of initiation that's happening. I was listening to the episode you released yesterday, where we're all feeling this sort of sense of breakup, this sense of grief, this sort of diaspora between us and place, that there's a lot of learning that's happening within that, but so is this longing to come back and to be a part of place and community in so many different ways, both at the microscopic and the macroscopic level. That intuitive sense like you had of needing to eat more meat or, or to start eating meat again. I joke often, I started trying to be a vegetarian for like, I think it was like six months. And I remember going on my annual guys trip, everyone gets, you know, burgers and steaks. I'm from Alberta, which is like the Texas of Canada. And I get like bean burgers or something. <laughs> Buddies are all like, oh, you're on a new thing. And this, you know, is about eight years ago. And I remember being at a taco party later, you know, maybe a couple months later. And I had brought cauliflower tacos. I was like, shit, these are going to knock it out of the park. I found myself in the kitchen over the beef bowl, spooning ground beef in my mouth. And I, it wasn't conscious. All of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I'm spooning beef into my mouth. And when I got my blood chemistry done, I was low on everything beef had that I needed. And, you know, what you were saying about this, like nature survives, right? Like all you were saying how the cow has these 150 million was it billion microorganisms in one tablespoon yeah if we are not actively participating in nurturing and nut giving you know nutrition to the 90% that's not us whether that's emotional or uh, food based or even just putting your feet in the ground or like looking at the sun vitamin d all that stuff how can we expect it to take them to take care of us? It's really interesting. We've like abandoned it and gone to scrolling our phones, you know, or gone to the drive-through. And it's not anyone's fault that they go to a drive-through other than that the drive-through exists and it's convenient and all the things that you've been sold and the people who put the food in the takeout, I mean the food generally is shit. Yes. 
we haven't made this relationship with our food or with place a priority in modern culture. Our relationships are with things predominantly, with these material items. And I think that when you're sort of in service to this idea that you are feeding so much more than just yourself, that that nourishment is is feeding the the other 90% of you that isn't you, <laughs> that that becomes, that begins to look a little bit different. And that in doing that, perhaps in seeking out some of these these whole foods, we're also nourishing local economies. We're also nourishing soil organic matter and helping to build all of these communities within the soil. And we're nourishing the relationships that we have with the people that grow our food, whether that's, whether that's us or whether that's reaching out to a farmer. And so I think this has wide-reaching impacts of nourishment. And I, I, I want to say, too, because I think you said something really important, that there are emotional nourishment, right? That's a nutrient, too. And I think that there is also an element of story that is a nutrient, that we are so disconnected from the story of our food and the story of how we fit into this interconnected web of life, and that 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 is also a nutrient that we are missing. And so while we have all of these calories that surround us, we are so nutrient poor and we are, we, we're starving. For so many things. Yeah, for connection. Look, I like to get my greens on the go. I don't want to compromise on quality. I want to get organic. I want non-GMO. I want all the things. And my favorite product from Organifi will never cease to be the green juice. And now they have a green apple flavor, which kicks ass. I think I can say that. But it kicks ass. It's so good. And it's so easy. You just take a glass of water, take a scoop of green juice, or you take the travel packs. They're great to travel with. You open it up, you put it in the water, you mix it, and then bam, you've got a green juice without the mess, without all that stuff. And you're getting all the nutrients that all these superfoods that are in the green juice provide. So go check it out. Go to Organifi.com slash create the love and you save 20% at checkout. So that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash create the love. And they have tons of amazing products. So go check it out and go save 20%. Let me tell you, as a new father, what's become abundantly clear is how important restful sleep is <laughs> for me. Not just to be present to life, to Jasper, to Kai, to my work, to creativity, but just so I can feel at my best. And I've been using this new product called the Hatch Restore 2. And it's this beautifully designed little unit that sits on your bedside table or wherever you want to put it and it trains your body when it's time to sleep and when it's time to rise and it uses light and sound cues and it coaches you through meditations and mindfulness exercises and what they do is they transform the time before and after sleep into these restful rituals and i notice a difference in my resting heart rate when i sleep my hrv so with the hatch restore too you sleep deeply with this pink white or brown noise and other sleep sounds that are inspired by nature. So no more jarring alarms, like we know that feeling, right? When it wakes you up immediately. This wakes you up over time with this sunrise alarm clock, so it supports your natural circadian rhythm. I have absolutely loved this. I can't recommend it enough. And listen, we all know great sleep can't be forced, but it can be learned. The Hatch Restore 2 can allow you to learn how to do that. So right now, Hatch is offering you, my listeners, $20 off the purchase of a Hatch Restore 2 and free shipping. All you got to do is go to hatch.co slash markgrove. So H-A-T-C-H dot C-O slash M-A-R-K-G-R-O-V-E-S. So hey, there's nothing I want more for you than to sleep deeply and wake gently. It's a real nice feeling and get $20 off and free shipping. So go to hatch.co slash markgroves. How do we begin, like in your experience, running a farm now? What kind of animals do you have? We have a lot of poultry, so chickens, ducks, and geese. I mostly raise goats for meat, as well as a little bit of milk for myself, some cattle and dogs. Is there anything? Have I missed anything? I cats. don't think so. You got any cats? No cats right now. Wait, what about farm cats? Like getting mice or they get 
they're part of I would of love a farm cat. If one would like to volunteer <laughs> on the farm, I would gladly, <laughs> would gladly take it in. <laughs> Definitely a part of the ecosystem. Well, we used to have one when we lived on an acreage and she was savage. She would just like come down walking with a mouse hanging out of her mouth and just one swing, done. I was like, She oh, knows. Man. She knows what she needs. She needs that mouse meat. Exactly. She was impressive. But yeah, the, so in your relationship to all these animals, you said you've been doing it for three years. So before you had a relationship to farmers as you, and I guess would it be ranchers, as you did the butcher. I know one of my uncles is a rancher. And when I say farmer, he's like, uh, no. <laughs> um, but in your, in moving from relationship to producer to being producer for self, what did you notice first in relationship to the ranchers? Like in that you were now cultivating this storefront so that people had a relationship to where the food was coming from. You were the broker of that relationship. You sourced it. And how did, did that change you? Because you go from being a vegetarian to all of a sudden eating meat and having a butcher shop. Like <laughs> that's wild to consider the switch. Yeah. So what was that like to then having a farm yourself? You know, the the switch to having a butcher shop and to being, like you said, that person in between a rural and an urban environment, that person in between farmers and consumers changed me in so many different ways, right? And, and what we're talking about here is cellular change because our food becomes us. But we're also talking about the change that we experience when we have a chance to witness the power of food to heal both land and bodies. And I sat in the middle of that space that on one hand, I was watching as ranchers that we were working with had creek beds that had been dry on their properties for as long as anybody could remember, have them come back to life as they regeneratively managed their landscape with ruminants. And so witnessing this deep power of healing when we tap back into nature's wisdom. And on the other side, I was having people come into the butcher shop and experience eating meat again for the first time, like you did in that kitchen where you just subconsciously <laughs> dug into the beef. And healing health issues. They were getting pregnant when they had had fertility issues. They were losing weight. They were improving autoimmune diseases and inflammatory markers. And so I was there in the middle of all of that healing. And at the same time, I think for myself, I was healing my body. I was healing some of the things that had happened to me in childhood through this powerful Venn diagram of relationship. And when I transitioned onto the farm, there was a new depth to that connection, to touch these animals and to be a part of their lives is such an intimacy with our food. And I think our relationship with food is intimate to begin with, right? And I, I think about this a lot, that when we take a bite of food and chew it up and it goes into our digestive tract, it's crossing a one cell wall thick membrane. And those elements of food that were once celestial bodies, that were once plant bodies, that became animal bodies, are becoming our bodies. And I'm not sure there are many acts that are more intimate than that. I think sex between two people, I think pregnancy perhaps, rivals this for true deep intimacy. And I think this is, as a side note, I think this is why we have such tightly held tribalism and beliefs around our food. But now I got to experience not just that, but the ability to see these animals in life and to touch them, to share in their microbiomes as I would go out and handle them and you know, we were in this process of sort of surrendering parts of ourselves and becoming one another. And through this, what I think is a very ancient contract of stewardship, that there is a symbiosis there, that, that there is a relationship there between us and our food, whether we are agriculturalists or we're hunters. And I think that relationship is different in those situations. But just this deep connectivity of, of knowing both the place and the animals that are providing you with nutrition. 
I imagine if you build a relationship with a goat, which how could you not? Yeah, it's so fun. Right. Like when you do, and then it comes time to eat said goat. What? Because I haven't actually done that process, you know, like, which I look forward to it. And I don't mean I look forward to murdering my goat named Cody. I look forward to the grief, but the gratitude that's present in the consumption of the love that is actually in indigenous, some indigenous cultures, they believe that the animal, you are hungry, you, you know, go hunting and the animal gives itself to you. And what is that like to go from like stewarding the animal to consuming the animal? This is such a, I've been thinking a lot about this process because this is such a hard to communicate process. And I think that our language is very limited in terms of the words that we have for the feeling of when you take the life of an animal that will become your food. And I can give you a lot of words like reverence and grief and honor. And uh, it's not quite joy, but it is aliveness, a sense of connectivity that is hard to really explain. And so it's hard because I think our language is limited. And I take this this component of death very seriously. And again, we're one of 44,000 generations of hunters. And this is part of being a member of a food web is to have this moment of death. And I think this moment of death for me really represents the transition of what we perceive as one into many. And you can look at this a couple of different ways. We see, you know, one goat, but really it is one-tenth goat and nine-tenths all of these microorganisms. And all of a sudden, the microorganisms that supported that life form are now able to go rogue, and that life form is supporting those microorganisms. You also have this process where that animal is going back to the soil in some regard. You know, when we talk about synthetic fertilizer, we talk about NPK. And the nitrogen in blood is going back and nourishing the soil. The potassium in flesh, if we left that goat there to decay, would also nourish the soil. Phosphorus in its bones would become critical. And that spot where that died and where that decayed would become rich with life. But if we choose to eat that goat, what we see is that it transitions into nutrients for all of these different human members, as well as the land that it nourished with its urine, with its feces throughout its life as it was managed in a rotational manner. And so that point of death in many ways to me is an expansion and it's a, it's a hard one, right? Like I don't wake up on the days that we kill animals and feel excited about it. I hold it with a great weight of responsibility of that relationship and responsibility to this ecosystem. Well, I think so often we pay to not be part of that process, you know? And hide it. We hide death in our culture in a lot of different ways. It's very obfuscated, whether it's, you know, whether it's human death or in slaughterhouses. This isn't a space that we talk about very much. And I think that increases that fear and unknowableness about death. Well, yeah, as you were talking about it, I was thinking, okay, when you're consuming the, the goat, you are actually participating in, it is the act of acknowledgement of mortality in service of life, right? And that made me consider how, as humans, we seem to want to remove ourselves from the pain of life, like from the requirement of survival, right? Like we want to figure out how to live off pills and fluids so we don't have to kill an animal, so we don't have to you know, kill a plant or whatever it is. Like we'll grow it in a lab. We'll do anything to not experience the suffering of the cycles of life, which I mean, I think that's also part of the longing, which is that that's just part of being here. We're trying to not be what we are, 
which is really fascinating because, I mean, gosh, that transcends to many conversations today about gender and about, you know, trying to escape just the very realness of biology and, you know, that. Yeah. What do you think about that? I mean, I think that this is a big part of our disconnection to death, that death is arguably the most important part of the cycle. And I think about this space where if we have a line to make it a circle, it requires death. And it solders together this this linear idea of how we approach culture, this sort of growth in perpetuity that we have this idea, whether, whether you're looking at economics or you're looking at corporations or, or anything else. But death takes a line and it makes it a circle. And that is the point at which we have decay, which is what is required for rebirth and really just all the elements of our bodies are on loan from deep time to go back and cycle in and out of one another. And as we've taken death away, and I think that this happens, you know, again, kind of in these these small fractures, but as an example, and I, I talked about this on a recent podcast, we stopped undertaking our own dead about 150 years ago, right? We used to have in the parlor, we would undertake and care for our own dead. And that doesn't happen anymore. We don't see death. We're not hunters. We're not farmers. And we don't care for our own dead at home the way that we have for all of human history, all 300,000 years of human history. And I think because that, we've developed this fear because death is this great unknown. And in that, we have outsourced death, whether that is to, you know, the few members of our society that process animals at a slaughterhouse or the idea that there's a deathless diet when even if I grow a monocrop of canola to make canola oil and beans to put in that bean burger. I am displacing an entire ecosystem. There is death in that. And there is death in the combines and the tractors that are going to harvest that land in the way that it depletes the soil because we no longer have biodiversity, but this monolith of plant agriculture. And so there's death in the soil and the soil erosion where we experience 20 billion tons of topsoil erosion in the United States every year. And if there's 1 billion microorganisms per single teaspoon of soil, what loss of life does that represent? And so I think we have this idea that we're so disconnected from death that we want to avoid it. We don't want to see it. But I think, and I know that you've had this conversation with, you know, to come back to Francis Weller again, these two things are woven together, right? Grief is the perigee to the apogee of joy. You know, I think William Blake would say this, you know, under every grief and pine runs a, runs a joy with silken twine, that we need one to feel the other. And that when we drop into witnessing our own mortality in these spaces of killing an animal for our food, we have that sense of aliveness, that tension that is given to us when we understand that this life is transient, that these elements of our bodies are on loan. And I think it deepens your sense of how far you would go to feel that aliveness and connection with the web of life that you are a part of that line, that tension, like that, that tension that is always there. And yet we pretend it's not like we, again, monetizable, super monetizable to say, let's just make it so you don't think about death. I have all these injections I can sell you. I have all these steroids. I've got all these hacks you can do all to not just be with the tension, which being with the tension is the liberation. You know, when I, I worked as a rep in pharma for years, still under undoing that karma. <laughs> and at the end, actually, I worked in hematology and oncology. And that the people I work, I mean, I worked with incredible people, but working with people in oncology was really powerful because, you know, these doctors are dealing with people in end of life, right? And 
I remember thinking to myself as I was learning about the psychological shift that occurs to people when they are potentially given a diagnosis. And I think of Bronnie Ware's work. She's a palliative care nurse who wrote a book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And there's that saying of like survivorship, that when someone finds out they're going to die, they actually begin to thrive. There's like something that occurs, like seize the moment, you know? And I thought to myself, like, how do you artificially, can you artificially, maybe artificial is probably the wrong word, how do you allow people to confront their mortality without having to actually be given a diagnosis, you know, which is really, it's strange to think about, but I just wrote about this this week, just saying that there's an African proverb that says, uh, when death finds you, may it find you alive. Mm, I love that. Yeah, and I think about that of like, how many of us are truly alive? And in order to come alive, there has to be a death. And the death has to be average. It has to be bullshit. It has to be like, I'm no no longer going to tolerate mediocrity for myself. I'm no longer going to put shit food in my body. And we might have all the reasons. I don't have, I, I don't know. And I get that. But you can grow sprouts in a jar in your kitchen for pennies, right? Like, it isn't, a, you know, what is that saying? That it's it's never a lack of um, motivation or it's, it's never a lack of motivation. It's a lack of knowledge, something like that. I can't remember. I butchered it. But either way, you can figure it out. There's fucking YouTube channels that will teach you how to turn your yard into a regenerative garden. Yes. And there are people and farmers in your community that want to help you find these resources. And I think that's that's the other piece of it too. But I think that you're right, that we are missing this experience of death. And I think when we consider it and, and coming back to the farm, I see it all the time. I see it in places that you don't expect. We think of spring, right, as this concert of life. But spring holds death of all of these fledglings that you find outside of nests and death and decay of these little animals and young that doesn't survive. And when you are connected into spaces, you see it. And so I think that some of this is just like what you said. We, we don't have knowledge of this. And so it, it makes it hard to connect back in, but it does fuel a deep sense of aliveness. And that aliveness is imbued with both joy and grief, that paradoxical aspect of being human where you're, you're sort of weighing those two things against one another in the same way that we're kind of both self and other at the same time. And I, th- I mean, I think it is, it has changed what it is to be human, to not have this thing be a part of us, to not have death. Well, building a relationship with local farms, you're one step closer, you know, and being with what, just being with nature, you witness death and and all the things all the time, like going for hikes, you're going to witness more of that you know, being with trees and all that. I'm curious for you, what do you, like for people listening who are like, okay, I want more of that. I want, you know, I want to get more relationship with nature. I, I want to get a relationship with death, you know, whatever it might be. What do you recommend for people who might be on the journey of wanting to discover farming like you did, to build relationships with the animals, all that stuff? You know, I first want to say, and I actually want to come back to something that you said, that we experience these little deaths of self, right? And so I think that in some ways there is a first step in seeing those deaths of people that we were or the death that happens when a relationship ends, those own milestones of death within our own lives and giving them the weight and the credence that they deserve. And I think that's something that can happen for everybody. And then I'll say that beyond that, and the first thing I want to say and push back on is that nature isn't something outside of us that we, you know, Werner Heisenberg, the physicist, said we cannot speak of nature without also speaking of ourselves. And so I always want to remind people that nature isn't something that is outside. It is continuous with us and and always has been. And I think even though there's this break in that relationship, that this fracture and idea of separateness that happens again at these different places throughout time, 
agriculture, scientific revolution begin to break that down. But we are nature and we have belonging within that community. And so that first relationship is probably honestly with yourself and the community of others that make up yourself and to begin to get curious about that community. If you are only 10% human, how can I support these other members of me? And to feel a sense of, okay, maybe I can, I can make some sauerkraut or I can make some yogurt and I can begin to fuel this, you know, microbial diversity that exists on and within me. And then begin to expand outwards. Because I really think that this needs to be simple. Because we are creatures of convenience, and I don't begrudge us that. And so maybe that first step is just going outside and grabbing a handful of soil and recognizing just how teeming with life that is, and that you are a part of that web of life that is changing and exchanging and transforming and interpenetrating one another. This is that sense of what Andreas Weber, or I even heard Francis Weller say it, the erotic, right? This constant transformation of matter that's happening with every breath. 20,000 times a day, we are expanding and contracting our self and otherness, just like the universe expands and contracts. And I think then from there, you know, if this is something that you really want to connect into, search out a farmer or a rancher, and there's usually one closer to you than you think, and shake their hand, get to know them and that above ground community. And I think that when you eat that first carrot, when you eat that first steak, let yourself be transformed. Let that relationship with that food, with that ecosystem, with the human hands that touched and grew that food, let that change you. And I, you know, I, and, and you can probably speak to this better than I can, but often so resistant to change when change is nature. It is us. It is everything. And it is constant. Like we are constantly transforming. And so let this transform you and let there be grief for what you feel is lost in terms of community and, and let this open up a portal into this initiation that we need as human beings to begin to tell ourselves a very different story of connection. Wow. That journey back, man. The journey back almost feels like it doesn't need direction, you know? It's just like a, a remembering, a forget, forget the other stuff, remember and restore what has always been there. I love that you say that because I think that this story is how we integrate past, present, and future, right? This is how we connect back into a cycle that is in many ways without direction or timeless, right? We've spent most of this podcast talking about birth to death to decay to rebirth. And so within these cycles, whether they're biogenic cycles of methane and carbon or they're these life cycles or these, they're these deeper cycles of matter through time, they're directionless. Wow. I am left uh, feeling a lot of reverence and love for what is this experience and reminders of that there is no line between us and nature. That again, as I know, uh, uh, the language matters so much. I remember Stephen Jenkinson who talks about death. I remember someone saying to him, oh, my relationship to death. And then he said, oh, there you go, separating yourself again. Mm, I love that. Oh, yeah. He's, he's savage in that. You know, he doesn't let you escape or try to distance yourself. And I appreciate you reminding everyone and myself that there is no distance. Like there's no other, like you are nature full stop and you're only 10% you, which that, that whole concept is actually so beautiful and liberating. But it's like, if I'm in a relationship with 90% other things that are making me walk and talk and work well, ideally, then I need to be exercising them too. Like I'm not just doing sprints for me. I'm doing sprints for us, you know? <laughs> A different level of accountability. 
Yes, yes. And then how much your own transformation transcends everything. As you said, when you start to buy from the farmer, you're now contributing to the soil and the animals and the economy. And the, it is this revolution that occurs truly through just where you direct your energy, your intention, and sometimes your money, or at least contribution. So Yes. And I think that gives you some agency too, right? And we yeah. need that that sense of agency, I think, in a time where we feel like there's so little that we can do to move the dial. Yeah, that restoration of discernment is so important because it transcends everything. Oh, I get to choose whether I go to Wendy's or I go to the farmer's market. Like just starting to make your own food and to do things differently it actually teaches you choice in every avenue. Oh, I don't have to participate in that toxic relationship dynamic anymore. Oh, I can have boundaries. It's so it's everything. How you do one thing is how you do everything. So no more takeout in terms of everything of your life. No more processed relationships. How's that? <laughs> no more processed relationships. Just, uh, like just whole relationships. I like that. Kate, thanks so much for saying yes to your mission, for just like following your heart and your passions. Clearly you are like well uh, nerded out on all these subjects <laughs> in the most yeah. beautiful way. So thank you for reminding us all of so many things. For the people listening, where can they find more of you? I know you have a podcast. So yeah, if you share it all, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I'm sure it'll all be in the show notes, but you can find me mostly on my podcast, which is called Mind, Body, and Soil. And we talk about, I call it the threads of what it means to be human woven into this earth. And so there's some agriculture, some history, some art, all these different philosophy, all these different pieces that I think help us see all these threads of wholeness. Uh, you can also, if you go to groundworkcollective.com, you can find a rancher near you in the United States if you're looking for, for meat. That's a great place to go. And you can find me mostly on Instagram at Kate, K-A-T-E underscore Kavanaugh, K-A-V-A-N-A-U-G-H. Perfect. Thanks so much, Kate. Really appreciate you. Mark, it has been such a pleasure. I've been listening for years. So this was really special for me and I appreciate you, you having me on. Oh, this has been a slice. I agree. <laughs> <laughs>